welcome to Ruben's Sightglass. And today we're here on location in a Beverage Place pub in uh, West Seattle. And, and today we're joined by uh, Kendall Jones of the Washington Beer Blog. So thanks, Kendall, for coming on, on the podcast. Happy to be here. We, um, what we'd like to do today is, is uh, as we're, it's actually the 30th of December, and um, we wanted to do a, a year in review of beer and um, talk about what trends we saw this year and, and come and go and what we think is going to be coming in the future. And also, obviously, we're rolling up the end of a decade, so we've got another interesting view to, to think about as well in that context. Um, and uh, by the way, I did not select the music in the background that I'm sure you're going to be hearing on the, on the podcast. So I first met Kendall um, back right in uh, 20, 2012 when we f- first opened... Um, I was and, there on the first day. Yeah, yeah. And I remember you calling me and uh, when you were going to write about us in Seattle Magazine for the, uh, the American Rye one, I think like the best new beer or something in, mm-hmm. in, in I think the magazine. That, I think that's right. It was kind of, kind of fun. But um, maybe you can give people an overview of your, your background and how you got into being one of the leading beer writers in the state. Wow. Uh, well, thank you for calling me one of the leading beer writers in the state. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> I started out, I was a, I've been a writer for most of my adult professional career. Um, I wrote about a lot of different things, mostly software, which pays a lot better than writing about beer, <laughs> but it's not nearly as much fun, and the benefits are not nearly as good, unless you're talking about medical and retirement and things like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I was, a, I was a writer. I wrote uh, marketing materials for Microsoft, and then I wrote a lot of technical stuff for another software company here in the Seattle area for a long time, and then... Uh, I had always been a beer fan because I was way back in the days, in the prehistoric beer days in the 1980s, um, I was uh, a home brewer in college. And a couple of buddies of mine in college were more intense home brewers than I was. And they both ended up going to work for Red Hook back in the, the late wow. 80s. So uh, I had a couple of buddies and became friends with all of those Red Hook people. We called ourselves the beer test dummies. Um, <laughs> we had parties. We'd have parties when they were t- testing out all their new beers and stuff. And this is back in the days when you know Red Hook was like maybe 25 employees. They were small. When they were and, in Ballot. No, yeah, when they yeah. were in the... Well, when they, they had, by that time, they had... Uh, I think they had already moved out of the, the transmission shop and were in the, the building that is now Theo Chocolates right across yeah. from Brower's. But uh, those days, it was still a small company, and they were still, you know, one of the coolest breweries around. Because I mean, there weren't very many breweries around. But anyway, so from moving, and those guys all moved on to different jobs in the industry and stuff eventually. But because I was friends with these guys, I'd always been kind of an insider, and I got to know a lot of the people that were at Red, worked with Red Hook in those days. And I still know some of the people that, that worked with Red Hook in those days because they're still in different places around the industry. Anyway, so I was uh, became kind of an industry insider, and uh, then as things like email started to become more popular, I know it sounds like I'm talking about ancient <laughs> civilization or something. Uh, but I was qu- always quick to sign up for people's email newsletters. And I was always a s- subscriber to um, Northwest Brewing News and Celebrator Beer News and every beer magazine I could find. I'm, I'm, I was like a, a beer ad- a, a member of the beer advocate community from the very beginning, the, you know, the whole bit. And I'd always be sitting around the bar talking to people. And, and I was like, oh, you know, that beer you're drinking is from Bend, Oregon. It's like this and it's like that. And it's made with this hop and that hop. And people are like, God, how do you know so much stuff? And I was like, well, I, you know, I just know a lot about beer, I guess. And eventually, after my software career came to a a, a rumbling halt with the uh, recession of ten years ago, twelve years ago, uh, my wife and I just decided to give this beer blog thing a spin. And then after the blog got running, I uh, started get contacted by magazines to do some freelance work for them and stuff. So, yeah, I've 
you know, wrote for Seattle Magazine. I've written for Beer Advocate Magazine, which was kind of a red letter day for me. And, uh, you know, I've written for a bunch of magazines and I run the Washington Beer Blog and that's where, that's where most of my action happens. But uh, yeah, so I've just become kind of a self-taught local beer nerd, I guess. And I've always been a huge fan of beer from the very, very beginning, you know, since I was around, I'm old enough that I was around when craft beer was born. So I, I've grown up with, I mean, I was just old enough to drink almost legally when craft beer was <laughs> born. So uh, uh, I've pretty much, my drinking career has grown up with craft beer. So that's how we end up here. <laughs> Have you seen the community of, of craft um, in terms of the whole the whole piece, right? So like you, you've talked about people on the inside, but also on the outside. Like, Have you seen that? That's evolved like significantly over that amount of time. The actual the people who are drinking the craft beer, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. I mean, in the in the beginning, it was such a teeny, teeny, tiny subset of the of just beer drinkers, just and of, uh, even larger. I mean, there were there were more people who were enthusiastic about Dungeons and Dragons than there were people who were enthusiastic <laughs> about beer in the '80s and even in the '90s. We were still such a small little segment of the of the population that were actually, we all knew each other. I mean, it's like you go to yeah. the beer festivals and you'd see all the same people <laughs> all the time, you know? And in the, in the 90s, the beer festivals were awesome. They were really fun, but it was that way. They were, they were still pretty small. Um, the, the, one that has, the one that evolved into being the Washington Brewers Festival when it was out at the Herb Farm in the 90s, um, it was what we would consider now just a really intimate little beer festival, but it was awesome. It was a great event, and and the, but it was it's true. It's like we all knew each other. It was like you know, you, if you didn't know each other, you, you recognized all the same people. Yeah, and that has changed a lot. Now you go to beer festivals and you still see the same people, but you see a lot of other people. Yeah. And but that's a, one of the things that's changed about it is like that the modern craft beer drinker and seems to have changed. That there's so many more people that drink craft beer now that craft beer has gotten so much more popular, but that core group of hardcores, we're still kind of the same people. It's <laughs> yeah. still, a, it's, we're still this subset. So that's why I think that um, craft beer in general has grown so much, but like the popularity of beer festivals has, I don't want to say it's started to wane, but it has not grown on the same, on the same trajectory as, uh, as the craft beer aisle at the grocery store. Because yep. beer has gotten more popular amongst people who are not this subset of Dungeons and Dragons hardcore, <laughs> you know that we approach our our beer like it's some sort of uh, passion or we're aficionados that we're enthusiasts. Now craft beer is just what people drink. So is is there like a core whom ab above which they're not as interested? Right. I'm just trying to wonder how how do you get more people involved in in festivals or. Well, my question would be, I would come back to you with the question and say, why do you need to? Um, because craft as, as a category is, is struggling a little bit, right? So like we're at 15% of total volume in the United right. States, but we're only growing at 4%. Right? And I'm, I just, I'm, I'm not, this is not, uh, uh, this is an honest question. Yeah. Um, having better attendance at beer festivals, would that make that number go up? Is that what has driven this number to go up? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. Maybe not. I'm just. I'm, I don't want. To, I don't want to become the interviewer here. No, but I'm, no, I'm, no, I wonder. I question about this stuff all the time. I think exposing people more to craft is a way of growing craft, right? And mm -hmm. festivals are a pretty obvious way of doing that. But it's a pretty. Um, it's a pretty. Uh, focused way of doing it. Sorry, I'm listening to music and listening to people coming in. It's, it's hard, <laughs> yeah. to, hard to focus. Um, uh, I was actually with music going on in the background. I'm trying to think like, okay, so if you're, 
a band, like how do you how do you expand your reach, right? It's the same thing, right? Like if you're a craft beer, how do you expand your reach? If you're a band, just playing more shows expand your reach? Yeah, it does, right? So doing festivals must expand your reaches because that's kind of feels kind of similar. To yeah, some but, extent, but. but then I would say that like getting your beer into grocery stores is um, getting your music on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to sell more albums, getting your music on the radio is a pretty effective way to do it. If you want to sell more beer, getting your beer into grocery stores is a pretty effective way to do it. Selling a couple of kegs at a beer festival that... No, it's not. It's yeah. not, There's it's not, not the, the money. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not the business yeah. case there. I think, I think what the thing that hasn't changed about it is that there is a certain appreciation of the craft, I think is what you're talking about. And how do you get... I mean, there's this huge group of people now that drink craft beer that are just beer drinkers. And they're not necessarily... They're not necessarily adoring the craft the way that my generation or even the, the generation of beer drinkers that came up after me yeah. adored the craft. We, we appreciated the fact that it was small and then it was local. And there's still plenty of people who are getting, in, getting in enthusiastic and turned on to craft beer that, are, that like it because it's small, because it's local, because it's an authentic product. Uh, but there's more and more people who just don't care about that. They drink IPA because they like IPA and they don't care if it comes from a brewery that's owned by Anheuser-Busch or if it comes from the little neighborhood brewery down the street. They they just, they, they, they shop, they drink what they like and what they like is IPA. And of course I'm calling out IPA because there's a certain reality to that. Yes, yes. Um, I don't think there's a lot of people who are enthusiastic about imperial stouts who are willing to so easily cross that line between the small local breweries and the, the bigger breweries. But, uh, you know, I... I I just think that's it. There's that you have to embrace it all. I mean, I think we can grow that crafty segment of the people who really like craft the craft of it, and I think we can grow the kind of wider appeal of it. But we have to be we have to acknowledge that it's all growing together. And I think the huge amount of growth that's happened in recent years with the craft beer industry has been fueled in large part. And the numbers prove it by IPA, and it's been and it's been fueled by these people who are now who were going to the the grocery store and maybe shopping for Bud Light or Corona or whatever and have been convinced to make the switch. And IPA has helped them get into that world. Um, but they're, they, those people, those numbers may go up, but they may never become the kind of people who are, you know, subscribing to Beer Advocate and going to beer festivals. Yeah. So that's the question I had going back to your personal history of starting out loving beer right at the start of the craft beer boom and seeing the same people at festivals year after year and then now those people still go to a festival but it's kind of maybe not drowned out but it's been subsumed by this bigger group of crafty people what that kind of says to me is that we're losing some of the community around craft and i'm not sure if that's good or bad uh you know i remember going to early big wood festivals at browers and there would be the same people in line you'd have the same conversations year after year and now i bet i would go and wouldn't recognize anyone it, does it matter for our industry that maybe there isn't this tight-knit group of people that have similar values and similar ideas? What I there? heard from Kendall, though, is that there is still that community, but now we've got a lot bigger, so that hardcore is still there. Yeah. But now there's there, we're lost in amongst... Yeah, but we're not... You're never going to well, lose us. No, okay? no, no, That's no, the no. thing. You're never going to lose it's us. Harder you, to find. Some of those other people <laughs> I was talking about, you might lose them to Seltzer, or you might lose yes, them to yes. something so else, this, but you'll <laughs> never lose me. I'm always going to be a crowd. So this guy. is exactly <laughs> my question. Is the issue that we haven't brought them into that community and made them lifelong believers in the craft experience, for lack of a better mm. phrase. I mean, you get people, obviously, it starts with the beer, the flavor's great, 
you're interested in new style, you get IPA, it's in your hand, but you're not invested in the kind of bigger idea of the movement, I'm making air quotes. Is that the issue? Is that something we need to worry about? We, we've, craft has been a disruptor in fizzy yellow beer, right? And you've, yeah. Kendall, Kendall's seen that. That was its, a, that was a, that's its birthplace. Yeah, was, that's how we started. Yeah. yeah, and all we wanted as craft beer drinkers, or as beer drinkers back in the 80s, was we wanted something different. So, so we've seen a big disruption in an incumbent industry that's been the same for, well, since the 30s, right? <clears throat> so the question is, how far can, the, can you take that in terms of, like, what is people's appetite for yeah. non-fizzy yellow stuff, right? Yeah, well, I mean, we've learned a lot over the last few years. I mean, I remember, like, when well, you guys, Rubens came out with the great Goza, but when, when Goza first hit it, I don't remember who came out with the first one. I was like, no way, this is not going <laughs> Any place, and you know, and it was it was some. I don't want to say it was a fad, but it was a fairly short-lived phenomenon. Uh, it's still there, and there's still great gozas out there. But you know, for a while there, it was a big deal. Um, but I mean, I, when I first heard like, oh, somebody's recently goza, and I'm the goza is going to be the next thing. I'm like, no way. Yeah. No. Yeah. A sour, salty beer is not going to be the next big thing. It's not going to replace IPA. It's like no. <laughs> it got way bigger than I ever would have guessed. Yeah. So yeah. You know, and now there, there's a lot of other types of beers that are getting, have gotten way bigger than I ever would have guessed too. You know, and it, so I mean, I guess in the end, it's like you know, what do I know? <laughs> but like with with goza, I I didn't click it as a concept until. I thought of salt and vinegar chips, which we have on our table here right now, um, because it, that was when I could get the flavor profile like made sense in my head. But like salt and vinegar chips are never going to be the leading chip in the world, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the, gonna... the, the basic potato chip is still yeah. just normal yeah. American style salty potato yeah. chip, not flavored or anything. Is yeah. probably always going to be the number one seller. Yeah, I think, I think so. It's the same thing probably with beer to some extent. But I think that as far as what you were originally talking about here with try, how do we get those people more involved into the, the craft of it um, or that, that kind of uh, um, enthusiasm for it that, that us hardcores feel, I mean, I don't know exactly what the answer is to that, but I, I once going to go back to that, do we need to? I think we can, if we can bring them partially into it, they don't need to know they don't need to know everything as much as like some of us hardcores do. That yeah, I need to know what the what the original gravity was. I need to know what kind of hops you used. I need to, I need to know all that stuff. Or I, I don't need to, but I enjoy knowing that stuff. We may never get them to that point, but we can get them to appreciate the fact that craft breweries, small local craft breweries, are creating jobs in the local community. They're contributing economically to their community. They're helping every other aspect of the local business. It's not just some product that's being shipped in from someplace else. It's not just like going to Costco and buying toilet paper. It's it's a, a product that is, is has value in the fact that it is local and it is it is comparatively small. I think there's value in that. And I think we and there's a, and there's a, the maker culture is not going away. You know, it's it's taken a few years for that whole maker culture thing to really pick up in America. But I think it's it's I think it's it's there, and there'll always be a market for that, and hopefully it'll grow. The local movement is big as if, if that's what the maker movement is. But um, the whole perishability of beer is an important thing that has been drummed out of us for, <laughs> since pro prohibition. Um, but now I think with craft, we're bringing that back, and and so the freshness is important, which links to lo locality and. Um, just going, we, we talked about IPA and how IPA is driving the industry. So when we're looking at the year in review, so 2019, what what did you see or, um, around IPA in particular sort of come and 
come and go? Well, yeah, we're at the Beverage Place Pub, so forgive <laughs> forgive the dogs in the background. <laughs> it's not me. It's not me whining. <laughs> yeah, it's none, of us, none of us at the table are whining. It's it's definitely it's a the dog that just came in. Um, well, in IPA, you know, I guess it was it was somewhat surprising in the beginning. Once again, I, I am not very good at being clairvoyant about what's coming in the beer industry, um, but I never would have guessed that Brute IPA was going to become a thing. And it, yeah, it definitely had its day, you know, and I think I think this 2019 was definitely the year that we saw Brute IPA just kind of yeah. <laughs> blow up and then immediately But the, it's interesting because now there are versions, they, the, the the better beer companies in the world have you know, you know breweries that's you know crap breweries have learned from the the brute experience. You can get some of these lower alcohol, still very hoppy. I'm thinking like Wowza from Deschutes, which is like a four percent alcohol IPA, and you're like, oh, that's not an IPA. Then you drink it and you go, yeah, that is an IPA. It's a pretty lightweight IPA, but I guess you can call that an IPA. So I don't know. I think it's that's something that we kind of took away. I mean, the Brute IPA thing came and went, uh, but I don't see, and it's, I think the milkshake IPA thing, I don't know if it's, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I pray to God that it's dead, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's, if it, I am going to guess that it's on its way out if it's not completely dead yet, but great breweries, great brewers will take something away from that and, and envelop it into, into what they do. I'll totally agree with Brutes. That was one of the things I was thinking about. Um, I find, I find that interesting because, um, when the first like craft beer um, stall, let's say, I wouldn't say bubble burst or whatever, but in the like 2009, 2010, um, or not the first, but one of them, you know, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of people talking about um, craft beer, like somebody coming into craft. If they don't have a good experience with their first beer, they're going to not be buying craft again. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I, I saw that with Brutes. I, I, we, we, we made one and we did it in, in, a, in a way um, that I think was nice and clean. But it's a, a style that was really hard to not get yeast stress from. So right. there was a lot of off-flavored brutes around. And if ever I asked somebody about a brute, they said, oh, they didn't like it because of this reason or that reason. And almost every time I heard that, yeah. there was some off-flavor come through. Yeah, it was not the, the yeah. When, so, you drink a, when, you, when you drink a good brute IPA, there's, there's, those flaws aren't there. But no. I understand what you're saying. It was, it's an easy beer to get wrong. So I think like, similar to how we stuttered craft growth like, a number of years ago, maybe we stuttered brutes as a category. Maybe they never had really any traction behind them, but we didn't do ourselves any favors as a, as a, as an industry to some extent. And, um, you know, I, I listened to a couple of podcasts, a few podcasts in the last weekend, and people were talking about that now that there's so many breweries now that there's a lot of variability. Yeah. And I, it makes me wonder is, is that going to lead us to a stuttering of, of craft growth in the future? Yeah, I wonder about that too. With with the the, the growth, I mean, I, Washington. I think we've done. We're. we're I want to say. I, I'm going to let myself believe this. That we're beyond that. The idea of the, the the number one rule is you can't open a brewery and make bad beer. And it's not in, not in Seattle, not in Washington. You can't open a brewery and make bad beer. Um, there's just too much good beer. But the fact of the matter is, is and we all know this, and we're not going to mention names. But um, there are still breweries that open, and they they're selling flawed beer, you know, uh, beer that I would say is like completely flawed in, in one way or the other. And oftentimes what I notice in new breweries, and this is honestly, it's usually the smaller breweries, 
um, they'll all be flawed in one particular direction because there's one part of the process that they're getting wrong. And it's like, I always say like, I always, I've always said that like the Washington Brewers Guild should like have these like within six weeks after a brewery opens or maybe four months after a brewery opens or something, they should, they should have a, a, a crew that comes in, you know, close the blinds, shut the windows, you know, make sure nobody else is there and just have a, have a straight up talk with people about their beer. You know, make sure everybody's beer is up to the same quality because it's like you say, if somebody has a bad beer, you, you might lose them forever. It's not just a, a fan of that brewery, but of craft beer in general. Yeah, I wonder with the explosion of the number of breweries, and we can get into the, the numbers, there's a seemingly insatiable appetite in many neighborhoods, say around Seattle or anywhere around the country, for more breweries. So I feel like you could get away with more sins with your beer because there's just such demand, and people may not know craft beer already, so they just taste your yeah. product and accept that this is good or great. But I wonder if part of the reckoning of the number of breweries we have in any given area or certainly in the country will come down to quality ultimately, that when people discover right. real big quality beers, if maybe their tolerance for new breweries that aren't hitting on all cylinders. Yeah. Uh, it seems like you could get away with more in the past. You know, it's interesting because in like even in brewery dense areas, a brewery can still open and and make what I'm going to call subpar beer, and still be really popular just because people like their tap room, um, or they they have some sort of connection to the community or something. And instead of going to the really good brewery four blocks down the street or six blocks down the street, they'll go to this brewery because it's the one that they like, even though the beer is not as good. Uh, Will those people eventually come up to understand what good beer is, you know, or what what beer that's not flawed is, or what on par or above par beer is? You know, I don't know. I, I think, I think the same, the thing about the beer the beer world that is, we have to accept is that um, what the craft beer industry has created in America, and once again, I'm Washington beer guy, so in Washington is we've created a new kind of culture. The taproom culture is so different nobody saw this coming uh that it's just it's a way of life for people now so you know how do they how much do those people who enjoy pushing the stroller up the street to the to the the local brewery and meeting their friends and watching the kids run around in the beer garden and stuff how much are those people ever going to really convert to hardcore beer fans hardcore beer enthusiasts i don't know yeah, do we, and once again, I'm going to go back to the same question. Do we need them to? That's a very interesting point about our taproom culture here in Seattle, let's just say. Oh, I should interject real quick. Yep. I need them to because what I do on my website is provide information for those people who are hardcore, really into the beer. So everybody, please get really enthusiastic about you got to crave knowledge as much as you crave beer. Come to my website and like read all this cool stuff I'm talking about because everybody should be so into beer. Anyway, I completely agree. Um, so with tap rooms, I mean, as you said, this is kind of a way of life in Seattle. I know it's a way of life in Portland. But surely that can't be static. There needs to be some innovation in tap rooms. There's ways to keep it lively. Did you notice anything going on in our community this year in terms of innovation in tap rooms? Any change in the culture? Do you have any predictions about where things will go? You know, I don't know that I'd say it's innovation, but I have noticed that people are starting to um, this idea because one of the big issues is the idea of should kids be in tap rooms, 
And I've noticed that, you know, a few years ago, it was like, oh, you're crazy if you don't let kids in your tap room. But now there there are breweries are starting to open and they're making their own decision, just like they make their own decision about whether they want to make hazy IPAs or not. They're making their decision about like, nope, we just don't want to have kids in our tap room. And I think they're cognizant of the fact, you know, one opened in my neighborhood. They said, nope, we're not going to allow kids. And there's a lot of kids. There's a lot of young families in my neighborhood. And it's like, okay, it's a lot of people that aren't going to be going to your brewery because they can't bring the kids. But they're like, nope, we just don't want to have, we just don't, that's not what we want. And, you know, I respect that. And I think it's just interesting that in this taproom culture uh, that I think the the brewers are getting a little bit more kind of bold or uh, what would it say, you know, more uh, self-directed, more independent in thought about what they can do at their taproom. I also think it's interesting that this idea that satellite tap rooms is starting to really pick up because it's, you know, I'd like to, I like to believe as a hardcore beer guy, beer guy, I'd like to believe that the thrill of going to the, the tap room is drinking beer at the source and being able to look through the glass wall and say that's where the beer was made. But, you know, when, when a brewery from Portland decides they're going to open, or Bellingham decides they're going to open a brewery tap room in Seattle, all they're doing is selling their beer, and the beer's not even made on site. It's like, you know, I, I never would have saw that coming. I never, I never would have thought that would be a big deal. Do you think that would be successful, the model? I think it totally depends on the kind of atmosphere they create. I think that if they just think they can come in and just open a place that's just serving their beer, unless it's cheaper... You know, I think that, you know, that's one of the re- another one of the reasons why there the reasons why people like to go to brewery tap rooms are because there's a massive variety. Generally, it's a little bit cheaper than going down to the local pub or going to a local restaurant bar or something. And it's and then to see the atmosphere of the brewery tap room. The t- brewery room brewery tap room atmosphere is different than bar room atmosphere. It's like, you know, Re- Ruben's Brews, you guys get busy on a Saturday afternoon. It's not like not like if you shut down, all those people are going to go 6 blocks away to the Sloop Tavern and drink there all Saturday afternoon. It just doesn't exist. You know, one of my favorite things is I heard that one of the things that we've introduced with this brewery taproom culture is we've like somehow legitimized day drinking. You know, (laughs) we've made it, we've made it, we've made day drinking on a Saturday afternoon somehow like a a hobbyist activity. It's a way to grow the market, right? (laughs) So, I mean, I think as long as we keep legitimizing day drinking, I think the brewery taproom experiment is going to be wonderful. (laughs) One thing that I'd like that you said there about people creating new tap rooms, satellite tap rooms, and how their success is going to be built on what kind of atmosphere they create. One of the things I think a lot about as uh, one of the marketing guys at Rubens is the experience that we can create in our tasting room because it's the most direct way that we can tell our story. And as you say, it's the source of our beer. Uh, so I just want to point out there that we really think of it as kind of the spiritual home for us because that's where we get to help control the experience and tell the whole story and give you the best possible beer, the best possible right. experience and with the that, beer. I think that's one of the really key things that's helped the whole tap room, tap room, whatever you want to call it, the explosion of tap rooms and the popularity of tap rooms, which has been documented um, that we tap rooms have taken over business from honestly, from bars like this one right here. People are going to, we don't have a lot of them here in West Seattle, but um, in Ballard, I am certain that there are, some of the bars that are suffering a little bit. But like I said, you're not lo- the Sloop isn't losing any business because Ruben's Brews exists. You guys are totally different animals. But I just think that there's a, that, um, I think that it, it is, it's a, a different kind of experience. And one of the things that makes it a different kind of experience is it's the best quality beer. 
I recently picked up a, a six-pack of beer because I saw it on sale. It was from a, a brewery that I love and that I trust and that I respect. And it was on sale for about a buck cheaper than I would have expected it to be. And then I got home and I opened it and took a sip. And I was like, that just doesn't seem quite right. And I looked at the bottom of the can. It's a year old. Oh, wow. It wasn't, it wasn't ours, was it? It was not yours. <laughs> fuel, fuel, fuel. <laughs> yeah, we're both no. sweating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was not yours. <laughs> Because wow. I don't love and respect your group. <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, we teed that up. <laughs> yeah, you did just tee that one right up for me. But yeah, they, so it's like that. But that kind of experience is really critical. We talk about that that experience of your first taste of the beer. So I mean, I have already reached out to that brewery and said, just so you know, yeah, uh, yeah. and I found it at two different places because oh. I I checked it at another place in generally the same neighborhood, and it's. The distributor is not doing him any favors right now. No. Just going to say that. <laughs> going back to the tap rooms, I think we all have to live in, like, coexist in the right way, right? And and with the rest of the ecosystem, so be that bars or, or or whatever. So, like, without our tap room, Ruben Spruce wouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, without our tap room, we wouldn't be able to brew 150 different styles a year and give, like, bars the option to buy all these different beers that we make, right? So there's a benefit to bars, like, but if we go and open 50 tap rooms around the city, then, yeah, that's not a good thing for the incumbent bars because mm-hmm. we're essentially competing with them, right? Yeah. So as Matt said, we, we believe that the authentic experience is a key part of a tap room because yeah. why do people go to tap rooms? Yeah, well, we named the brewery after our, our son. We went to tap rooms when he was born because we... We could take him there, right? We didn't go to taverns, you know, because we right. couldn't take him there. Um, so, well, not just that you couldn't, you wouldn't. Yes, yes. Yeah. Exactly, you know, it's, exactly. it's a totally different experience. And also, it's a bit more being a being a foreigner myself. You know, it's a bit more of a European model, right? It's more like what I'm used to. I'm used to as a kid going going to the pub and having a shandy. Like, I'm not saying that we have shandies here, but but like yeah. that's kind of what like if you're in France, kids. 10 and 11 have wine with yeah. the drink. Like, there's a far more open culture around alcohol. And so, like, um, tap rooms just help maybe make it a little less get to 21 and get sloshed type, right. like, type attitude. But, um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, that's why people say, like, you know, it's just there are some people that have that pure, puritanical approach to it. That the reason there's, well, there's people who are, don't like kids in tap rooms because. They don't like kids in tap rooms. The kids are noisy. They take up seats. They're not drinking beer. <laughs> Whatever you want to say, you know, they're adult-centric people who don't just like don't like having the kids around when they're out drinking on a Saturday afternoon. But there's you know other people who have this puritanical like you know, who would bring their child to a tap room? This is a drinking place. You know, those people. Nah, I got no I got no place in my heart for those people. <laughs> Talking about pure iterations of, of beer, what about seltzer in uh, 2019? <laughs> well, it's, it's loosely termed a beer, right? Like, I think legally, it is, or under it tax is. purposes, it's a beer, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it is in other states, but here it definitely is. I mean, it's like, it's, a, it's just a really cheap, fast way of making really, really inexpensive beer and selling it for a price that's damn near the same as beer. But So can you blame anybody who's doing that? <laughs> as somebody who runs a brewery and has to put really expensive ingredients into it, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that... I think that it's part of a trend that, I mean, and trend is, I'm not saying fad, it's a trend. It, seltzer fits into that health and wellness side of things. And there's going to be other things that we haven't foreseen yet that are, that are going to come along. 
that are going to fit into that because people are more health health conscious now, and people are going to be looking for lower carb, lower calorie alternatives to drinking a pint of IPA. And so I don't know. I mean, I think that seltzer is going to go through its growing pains. I don't. I don't know how big it's going to get. First of all, I don't know how big it's gotten bigger already than I thought it was going to. And I know that I get people send me their seltzer. They want me to try their seltzer, even though I. Very. The only time I ever wrote about seltzer is when it first started to exist, and I was like, "Hey, all you beer drinkers out there, check this out. This stuff exists." Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much all I did, and um, I have noticed. But over the last couple of years, you know, I've noticed that it's gotten a lot better. You know, the first when it was fir- when it first came out, it was pretty nasty, and it's gotten better. Now I can't say that I've ever had. I don't drink any of the cheaper ones. You know, I don't drink the the big box, the White Claw and crap, but uh, the ones that I've had. You know, I've noticed over the last couple of years they've gotten better. So, will they become a, a bigger thing than they are now? I don't know. I think that, but I think that health and wellness thing is something that people are going to continue to think about. And I think there's going to be definitely going to be growth in that part of the industry. But what does that mean? What does that look like for brewers like you? I don't know. I mean, I think that there's going to continue to be growth in all aspects of the of the that the beverage industry, except for the big macro brewers. I think they're the ones who are going to suffer the most from all of this because let's face it. Okay. Here's the thing that I, I've determined about seltzer. And this is an important point. People who are going out there and they're making their buying decision based on, they walk into the store and they say, I want something that's low calorie. That's low carb, low alcohol. You're not going to lose any beer drinkers to that person because the people who drink your beer start out from the exact opposite place. They go, yeah. I want flavor. I want authenticity. Yeah. And if, it, if it's low carb, if it's low calorie, that's great. But they don't come at it the other way. Yeah. They're like, because seriously, it's like I have a lot of friends. I still have a lot of friends who only drink light beers like, light, like Bud Light and Coors Light. And it's because they don't care what it tastes like. They will never be a craft beer drinker. You'll never convince, con- convert them because they don't care. The seltzer drinkers, I think, are the same way. They start from a different place than craft beer drinkers do. They start from the, the point of, I want something. I don't care what it tastes like. I want it to be low-carb, low-calorie, and gets me drunk. And if it has some flavor to it, yay, that's a bonus. <laughs> I swear. That's, I swear that's what I see as being there. They come from the exact opposite side of the spectrum as craft beer drinkers as real enthusiastic craft beer ringers, I should say. <laughs> I think you're right. I think, I think um, it's a trend, right? So that seltzer is taking a place on a trend, but what's that macro trend and where does that end up? Because I think seltzer isn't the end, it's part of the journey, right? Like, yeah. Um, and, and where they eventually land. I mean, it, are they coming from light beer? You know, like light beers were the thing at one point. Ice beers, remember ice beers yes. is a trend, yeah. you know? Um, and... Where, you know, what's, where are they, where are they going with that? There's, a, there's a lot of um, analysis that I've seen this this year that uh, they're not just stealing from light beer. They're actually expanding the beer category to some extent. So like they're taking from wine and spirits. Yeah. So you've got this, uh, what's it, RTD category, ready to drink category mm-hmm. right now that's that's growing. So like they're they're kind of playing in that space a, a little bit. You know, like vodka infused like vodka tonic type, ready to go type yeah, yeah. things, which obviously has nothing to do with us whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. And for the record, it never will be. But, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of in- interesting. But for me, I'm trying to think about where that trend is taking people. And maybe there's a, somewhere that we can play 
in the future, in the next decade, you know? Yeah. The, um, well, there's been, there's, you know, there's, there's been a movement towards these people making, like I mentioned, Deschutes Wowza earlier, which is this kind of a lower calorie, lower carb, lower alcohol kind of health, healthy IPA, or I don't know what you want to call it, a, a more body conscious IPA. Um, but I think there may be more of those. And there's been several companies who have popped into existence recently that are focusing on making these these kinds of beers. And most of them that I've tasted have been really bad. Yeah. I'm, Deschutes, I'm not saying that about them at all. I'm just saying these other companies that have popped into existence purely for the purposes of making a non-alcoholic beer or a low-carb beer or a low-calorie beer. If they pop into existence for the sake of making that, it seems that they suck. Whereas you take a good brew, like you guys could probably make a come up with a, a beer that was low carb, low calorie, and it'd probably be a really good beer because you guys wouldn't sell it if it wasn't. Yeah. Yep. But I think these other people pop into existence once again. They're approaching it from the exact opposite yeah. place that you, the breweries that are making it, approach it from the exact opposite place that you approach it. So it's kind of interesting because we, we saw the session IPA um, trend come and go, didn't we? And that was yeah. like. What we few, saw the few word, years ago. the word came, the yeah, word yeah, session yeah, yeah. came and went. But <laughs> and it's the beers are still there. The kiss of death, right? <laughs> to any beer, right? The word session. But like, it feels like we're trying to go back to that from a different way, the health and wellness perspective. Because yeah. um, people want something like that, but they don't really want to admit it, maybe. I don't, I don't know. But um, uh, we have seen ABVs dropping like pretty religiously over a number of years, right? And, and this, this 2019 was no different. And Imperial IPAs as well. I'm, I've definitely seen less big IPAs around. Yeah. And, and um, the Hot Mob is a good example of that, I think. You know, yeah. when we don't know if you want to give uh, listeners an overview of, of the Hot Mob. Well, the Hot Mob, uh, Washington Hot Mob, was an idea that actually that you came up with, which was in how long was that? Seven years? This, this year it's going to be the seventh. It's crazy, annual. right? Yeah, that's, I that's can't crazy. even believe yeah. it. Time flies <laughs> yeah, so yeah. fast. I had hair then. <laughs> Seven years ago, Adam came up with the idea of uh, having Washington brewers try and prove that we can brew triple IPA that's just as good as Pliny the Younger. That's, that was kind of the rough idea, right? You know, and we you scheduled your event for right around the same time that Pliny the Younger is usually released. Well, because Pliny, uh, uh, um, Russian River pulled out, pulled out of Washington market, yeah. that year, so it was. So you know. N- Nature lover, nature loves a vacuum, but beer lovers don't necessarily love a vacuum. So it seemed like an opportunity to, to sell a bunch of triple IPA, and it skyrocketed for the first few years. And we went, we went from you had like what twelve breweries involved making triple IPAs that first year, and then we eventually got to the point where we had almost sixty breweries yeah, that made triple yeah. IPA. Which again, if you remember, when you first came to me and talked to me about it, I said, "Well, you got twelve, you got twelve breweries that had agreed to make triple IPA this year. You'll be lucky if you ever get to twenty. And then the next year it was like thirty-two, yeah. and then we got to almost sixty, and then then, too much. <laughs> and then it started to the next year it was like, well, you know, forty, and then the next year it was like, well, thirty, and it's like then the last year." You know, we were just like, okay, the last year was the last year, and we decided we have to do something different with Hot Mob. Yeah. Which, yeah. So. so we've taken the ABV requirement out, so it has to be an expression of hop character. Yeah. I think. Because um, truthfully, that's what I think. That's what people really love about. Yes. The the, the triple IPAs, and it's just a really challenge. It's a challenging style of beer, and it's challenging for you to brew. Yes. It's it's a definitely a challenging style of beer to brew, and it it, it leaves a lot of opportunity for bad beer people to make bad beers, trying to make navy, uh, beer that's 10% ABV and really, really hoppy. Just trying to make a beer that's 10% ABV is challenging enough to not get it wrong. 
but to make it a beer that's like a hoppy IPA and it's 10% AB, you know, 10% alcohol is, is crazy hard. And it's really hard for the bars to sell. Hard for the breweries to sell because it's hard for the bars to sell. As much as we all think, oh, everybody loves to get these big, strong IPAs. I'm crazy for big IPAs. It's like, yeah, that's what you say. But talk to the local publican and, and ask him how difficult it is to sell triple IPA. So he buys this really expensive keg of beer. And it's really hard for him to sell, you know, six and a half dollar half pints for yeah, this beer. And uh, so, yeah, triple IPA has a certain place in the world. And it was fun. Well, it was the triple IPA thing, but you know, I think you were smart to realize that the we, we the, all were right. Yeah, we all kind of agreed on that. Agreed on that. We, by the way, our our hot mob, Washington hot mob, that's going to be in February of 2020, uh, the February 6th through 16th, basically. It's one of those brewers weeks. It's a 10 day beer week, <laughs> um, but there'll be events all over Western Washington, and wahopmob.com is where you can find out all the information about that. But it's uh, it's going to be great this year because people are going to make beers of all different styles, but they all have to be at least 50 IBUs, which um, at one time that didn't sound like a big deal because, you know, we were all drinking IPAs that were 70 IBUs, but nobody makes beers that are that, that have that much bitterness anymore. So it's going to be, it's going to be fun. And they don't have to be IPAs even. There's probably going to be a lot of IPAs and a lot of double IPAs, but there's going to be other beers in there too, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Hoppy Pilsners, I would imagine, and super hop Pilsners, and we'll see. And so uh, Kendall, Nat from Browers, and myself are the three sort of people that corral the team, you know. Um, yeah, it's... it's yeah, because you, you can... Re it works well because you represent, like, the, the brewer side of it. Yeah. I represent the basically the marketing and promotion side of it, and Nat represents Browers, um, which is like the where we've always have the big kickoff event yeah. every year, and it has, that's where the the original event was held. But he represents like the the, the brewers, or the, I mean the the bar owners, yeah. the, the publicans side of it. So, yeah. you know, he understands better than we do how difficult it is to to organize an event where you're trying to sell a bunch of triple IPAs or whatever <laughs> triple triple hopped beers or you know super hoppy <laughs> pilsners or whatever. He understands the challenges that the bars face. So. We've got that. We've got a pretty good team rounded out now. But it is interesting as we run into the next decade that that first event in 2013, I think it was, um, we sold out all 12 kegs like the night of, um, and and now we're having to change change the whole setup and bringing down the ABV and having like a, maybe a slightly lower IBU requirement because that's where the industry is is moving, and we've 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 seen that definitely happening over the last the last um last decade there's a if you look back over the last 10 years are there any other big sort of highlights of what what you what you've seen craft do and well i, I obviously the, i mean that the ipa craze had started before i mean obviously the industry growth just we've yes. in 10 years we've gone from I, I don't know exactly what the numbers are but i'm going to say off the top of my head we've gone from something like 1500 breweries yeah, 1500, to yeah. yeah 1500 breweries to 7500 breweries to just yeah. use round numbers yeah yeah i'm what name me another industry that has grown <laughs> like that you know i nothing no industry has grown like that in the last 10 years i don't know if there's ever been an industry that grew that fast and that much Maybe not in terms of, there's been industries I'm sure that have grown in terms of dollars in 10 years, but in terms of the number of players in a particular market, it's, it's just, it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. And um, that's, you know, that just, I mean, we can't ignore that, that. That is the story of the last 10 years. Sub story, 
primarily has been fueled by IPA. We all people will argue with that and they'll say that's not it. But but the people who sell beer, your distributors, <laughs> your your sales guys, they'll tell you that it's IPA is what people want and it's what's it's what's caused the industry to grow. And the, and at the Brewers Association that monitors all this kind of stuff, you know. Bart Watson, their economist, will tell you that it's the IPA that has fueled this growth, you know? And the question of what's coming next after IPA, do you, do you remember what he said, the, the, the style that's coming after IPA? No, I don't remember. It's IPA. Yeah, IPA. <laughs> There's yeah. another type of IPA. Because that's kind of what it's been. All these sub-styles. Yeah, because it was. it was. Originally, it was IPA, and then then I just basic IPA transformed, and then started to get things like brewed IPAs, hazy IPAs, yeah. milkshake IPAs, fruited IPAs. It's yeah. just... You know, and I, there's, I've, I, I said many years ago, I told somebody, I said, you, you know, if you're going to make a porter, if you're going to open a brewery right now and you're, and you're going to make your flagship beer a porter, it's not a problem. You can make a porter your flagship, just call it an IPA. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People is. will laugh at you, but, you know, you'll sell a lot of beer that way. It is. It is. So for us, like, breadth is a big part of what we, we do. And it, and it, and it is, it is uh, sometimes a little tough because... Like we have a porter as a year-round beer, and we have a pilsner as a year-round beer, but um, IPAs you know, blow the water out of everything. Yeah. It's um, it's in- interesting that like hazy IPAs. Do you think hazy IPAs will last? Are they do they have longevity? I think I think hazy IPAs. What are the whatever their actual hazy juicy? I think is what the actual um, for the, you serious beer geeks the BJCP category that they created for them is hazy hazy juicy. Um, I think it's going to stick around. I think there there will be regular good old-fashioned IPA will still be a thing, and I think there will be other IPAs that will come and go. But I, I think the hazies are going to stick around. They're not exactly my jam. Yeah. Um, I like a good one, but I think there's just there's a lot of them out there that are just kind of hazy for the sake of being hazy, and they're just a little bit too juicy for me. But that's you know apparently that's what a lot of people like. So who you know who the hell am I to tell them that they're they're drinking the wrong thing if it makes <laughs> them happy, right? But I think the hazy juices are going to stick around. Yeah, I think I think so. I think they're a category here to stay. I, I um, in my head, I separate hazy and juicy. Uh, hazy is soft and pillowy and soft bitterness and like not no no bite and it's all fruit forward, like tropical fruit forward. Whereas juicy can be more of a mouthfeel thing. Um, I had a great example of a juicy IPA at Firestone Walker um, a couple of couple of weeks ago when we were in California. That was um, really like. Juicy in every element of the yeah. word, you know. It's still I'm, clear. I'm doing a hand, I don't know, hand signals here. But yeah, we're like, hand quoting. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. My, my, my wife refers to them as sunny delight. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, a lot of them taste like you're drinking them out of a, juke bo- a juice yeah. box. And I, I, don't, yeah. I don't appreciate those as much, but some, a lot of people do. So who am I to tell them it's not what they should drink? I used to work for a food group that Sunny Delight was a main competitor. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about that later. We, <laughs> <laughs> they ran it through the lab. It was kind of interesting. <laughs> so, um, I don't want to know. Yeah, no, no, no. no, I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> but um, in terms of um, in styles, like going forward, like Amber back in 20, 2009, 2010, you know, as the start of the, the decade, that ambers were a lot bigger than they are today, yeah. right? IPAs, it was around 2009 that they really hit prominence. They, they really started right? to skyrocket, it, yeah. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, they was, I think they were a pretty popular style mm-hmm. before that. Ambers were were the big thing in the, the, the 90s, for sure. Yeah. And then yeah. it kind of evolved into pale ales, and then IPAs yes. started to show up. Like you look at like where when Georgetown started their their flagship beer Manny's Pale Ale that took the world by storm in two thousand three, 
Yeah. That, you know, that was right at the heart of pale ale. Yes. The pale ale times. Um, but IPA had, was creeping up on it. Creeping up on it. But I think you're right. It was like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. that It was, it was surprisingly late in the game that IPA really took a stronghold. And um, it's kind of interesting just thinking where that will, where that will take us in the next 10 years. I mean, yeah. You have a crystal ball. Um, it's it. Well, what will be interesting is as much as um, IPA will, I think, will continue to be a, a really dominant style in craft beer. It's just I think it's going to be really interesting to find out what styles come along next that become popular. I mean, Pilsner obviously is is a popular style now. And that's not really surprising. Um, but will there be another? Will there be another style that will become? Is I, I can't think what it would be. It's, we've already we've already been through porters. People already know porters. If it was going to be porter, we'd know it by now. If it was going to be ambers, we'd know it by now. You know, what's it going to be? We'll find out. Yeah, another substyle, probably. A, probably, a small... well, but the, I think the substyles in large part are just going to be these kind of short-lived things. But what will be the next big trend? I don't know. I don't think there's anybody out there. That, if you if you know, contact Adam right away <laughs> and tell him, and he'll be so he can be the first out the gate with whatever the next big thing is going to be, whatever the next <laughs> IPA is going to be that's not called IPA. Yeah, uh, uh, my email address is on the website, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have a recurring segment here at. Uh, Psych class where we take reader questions or li- listener questions more accurately to the brewmaster. Anything you've ever wanted to ask Adam specifically or just a brewmaster in general. Since we have a guest with us here today, we thought we'd pose the question. Well, I know I'm, I know that in terms of uh, beer knowledge, uh, I probably can't stump him. But so I'm not going to ask you a question about yeast or hop creep or any of these <laughs> other fun beery kind of topics or rice but <laughs> i want to ask you about um your place of origin and what was your go-to beer uh, when you were when you were saying college age in england oh so i am um, so when i go back to the uk i now sound like an american and here i sound like a a Brit, right? So I'm in no man's land. So I, 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 I don't know that I'll ever really fit in anywhere anymore. So my homeland, I don't know where that ever is anymore. But um, uh, yeah, when, you know, when, yeah, I was, I, fizzy yellow stuff was a big part of it in, at university. Um, uh, scrumpy, actually. Oh, you horrendous hangovers if you had a, too many scrumpy of those. Scrumpy because of all the residual sugar and yeah, cider. One, our university bar had a, had a, um, like a, a cask of scrumpy that they tapped every Monday and it had lumps floating around of oh, apples yeah. in it. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> my I Lord, what part of England were you yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. You must have been in the, the Southwest or that, something. That was in the Midlands, the, in the university. Midlands. <laughs> but um, but I, I, I was born really close to Fuller's and um, I was like within two miles of the Fuller, Fuller's Brewery and used to work within two miles of that. So like I've always had an affinity with with um, Fuller's beers and also when I first moved over here it's quite emotional right leaving all of your friends I came over here just to be here a couple of years and then go back like for work yeah so whenever I would fly back um, the beer that was always on the flights at the time was London Pride so it's like it's sort of beer is beers are a lot of time and place you know like Mm -hmm. you if you have something it reminds you of, 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 of of a time and a place and for me London Pride reminds me of going 
back home to some extent, you know. Now I don't know where home is, but I still have it. <laughs> and it reminds me, it gives me good feelings, right? That's, that's kind of, it's kind of true. What about, what about yourself? What, 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 what do you? Well, you know, what, I, I drank a lot of Rainier when I was in high school. Has it changed, uh, do you think? Oh. I think Rainier still tastes exactly the same. Okay, okay. I mean, I could be imagining that, but I think it still tastes exactly the same, even though it's not brewed in Seattle, it's not brewed in Washington, it's brewed in a, a, you know, a facility down in California that's the size of 10 square city blocks or whatever. Um, I still think it tastes exactly the same, which is I maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe I'm just imagining that, projecting that on it. But for me, um, probably the first, the, the first craft, craft-ish type of beer that I drank was when I was probably 18 years old and it was some family that I knew. Uh, they were Brits and they would keep their fridge full of all sorts of things that I'd never had before. Uh, things like Watney's Red Barrel and Bass. And yeah, they Bass, had yeah. one time there was a beer in there in a clear bottle and it was uh, Samuel Smith's Oatmeal Stout. Actually, I can't remember if it was the, the, the Old Taddy Porter or if it was the Oatmeal Stout. I think it was the Oatmeal Stout. And I drank that beer, and I had no idea that beer could taste like that. That beer could be that far away from fizzy yellow stuff. And I was hooked. I made my first batch of beer probably within a year after that. And this was in the very infancy of home brewing technology, so it was horrible. Even if I'd known what the hell I was doing, ingredients just weren't available. So um, I go back, I look back, but that's what kicked it all off me. Because yeah. then eventually I became good at home brewing <laughs> and <laughs> continued on with my, my evolution as a, as a beer guy. But uh, I go back to that Samuel Smith. I actually, a couple of years ago, I actually was fortunate enough to get to go into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory and tour the old brewery in Tadcaster. Cool. Uh, which is something I was told that we don't allow anybody to do that. And I said, I'm different. You got to let me know. They said, well, you're media. And we especially don't allow media into <laughs> Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And I said, I won't tell anybody about it. I won't write anything about it. So all I can tell you is that I got to do it. And it was so cool. <laughs> oh, but I can't. I, I promised them I would never write anything about it or tell too many stories about what goes on <laughs> in that place. But it's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, craft beer epiphany was when moving actually to the US. I came from the land of macro lagers because yeah. just everything was homogenized and came here and Manny's and Mac and Jack's were two of the beers that like really back in 04 were like different to everything else. Mm -hmm. and, and that was kind of what did it for me. But um, I, I had a similar thing. I went to Fuller's recently and it's, it's, it's interesting when you see a 150 year old mash ton. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, my seven-year-old one looks worse than that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, but no, a big thank you for being on the podcast today. It's yeah, well, great. thank you for having me. It's been fun. It's been great hanging out. Yep, thank you very much, and uh, thanks to Beverage Place Pub for having us. And uh, if, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I also want to say thank you to Eric Johnson and Quiet Cody Studio for the music to this show and production. So until next time, cheers. 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 cheers.